I can't think of another important composer with such a startling attachment to the minor key than Sergei Rachmaninoff. Even his great hero Tchaikovsky managed one symphony in the major. But with Rachmaninoff, all three of the symphonies, all four piano concertos, the Paganini Rhapsody, the symphonic dances, all of the sonatas for various instruments, all but three of the 17 etude tableau for solo piano, every single one is in the dark minor mode. The only really big work I can think of that starts in the brighter major is the choral symphony The Bells, and even that finally plunges into a sepulchral C-sharp minor as the topic turns to one of Rachmaninoff's favourite subjects, death. You may have noticed our little Rachmaninoff signature in there, the shape that the bass soloist sings. That's another of Rachmaninoff's perennial variants on the old Roman Catholic chant that made a deep impression on him sometime in his youth, the Requiem chant Dies Irae, the part of the Mass for the Dead that evokes the horrors of the Day of Judgment. So what does all this mean? Well, Rachmaninoff, like Tchaikovsky before, and another great countryman Shostakovich afterwards, was much possessed by death. You get a great deal of brooding on this subject, even from when he was quite young. This is partly a manifestation of what was almost certainly a depressive temperament in Rachmaninoff. He was acutely, one might say overly aware of signs of ageing, change and decay, and he had a grim fascination with Arnold Birklin's famous painting The Isle of the Dead, possibly based on a fusion of the Venetian cemetery island San Michele with the English cemetery in Florence. The painting was the inspiration for Rachmaninoff's superbly sombre tone poem of the same name. Listen out for more echoes of the funereal Dies Irae in Rachmaninoff's Isle of the Dead. It's easy to single out Rachmaninoff as having a special and perhaps specially Russian gloom fixation. But as Vladimir Nabokov noted in his novel Despair, in the early 20th century copies of Birklin's Isle of the Dead could be found in every Berlin home. How many young composers today would consolidate their first triumph with a work about a man on his deathbed? But that's exactly what the 25-year-old Richard Strauss did in his tone poem Tod und Verklärung of 1889, Death and Transfiguration. 
And before we start congratulating ourselves for not being like those morbid, unhealthy continentals, let's recall the Victorian and Edwardian fascination with death, the huge popularity of scenes like Dickens's Death of Little Nell in the old curiosity shop. So while Rachmaninoff may well have been depressive, and may well have been giving voice to a kind of Russian fascination with mortality, he was also at the same time representing something more general in the spirit of the time. It was certainly still prevalent in the years 1906-8, the time he wrote his Symphony No. 2 in E minor. The minor bit goes without saying. For all his commitment to the minor dark side talking in terms of keys, Rachmaninoff's three symphonies are quite different. Yet they have one striking feature in common. All of them begin with a kind of musical motto theme, and there are striking similarities in the musical physiognomy of these mottos. Symphony No. 1 begins with a stern, forceful chant theme, its contours quite explicitly recalling the Dies Irae. Forty years later, when Rachmaninoff composed his third and last symphony, he did something interestingly similar. This time we don't begin with a fortissimo attention-grabbing beginning. It's pianissimo this time, but the procedure is very much the same. We have the shadow-toned chant motto theme, and then, once again, a spring into allegro action. There's no explicit liturgical source here, but that theme does sound very chant-like. It sounds particularly like some of the kinds of chant that Rachmaninoff would have heard in the Russian Orthodox services that he was brought up to. They form the basis of his great choral setting of the Easter all-night vigil service, and in a sense they're the template for many of his motifs and longer melodies. Symphony No. 2 starts with a very similar chant-like theme, again circling within the interval of the third. The Russian colouring of chant like that is heightened by putting the theme deep in the bass. Bass voices are such a crucial colour in Russian Orthodox chant music. You can almost smell the incense smoke hanging over music like this.
This time, though, in the second symphony, having sounded the chant motto, Rachmaninoff doesn't spring forward abruptly. He stays with this deep toned meditative mood. The chant motto theme isn't set aside, but developed in a long, slow introduction. It soon flowers into something much broader, the overall falling contour of the motif. is turned upside down, so the trend is upwards, aspiring. And in that, you have the seed of this glorious song theme. It's a seed that keeps producing more and more expanding song-like phrases. In symphonies one and three, we have a motto theme, threatening or heavy with elegiac sadness, followed by music which is soon in full flight away from it. But here, Rachmaninoff has opted for a different policy. At the beginning of symphony number two, he goes down into that dark funereal seam, probes it, then from it mines that gorgeous, sumptuously scored, aspiring song theme. There's an interesting question here about how much the personality of the music reflects the personality of the man or woman that created it. Rachmaninoff as a man may have suffered from his melancholia, but as a composer, there's nothing like the level of tortured self-consciousness that one finds in his great contemporary Mahler. Rather, an ability to stay with deep inner darkness, and from it create something, and here's the fascinating paradox, something ripely, even shamefully pleasurable. Rachmaninoff goes on mining that vein throughout the Second Symphony, though as he does so, the character changes. Eventually the first movement reaches a livelier allegro moderato tempo. The first theme is again very song-like. It rises and falls just like the motto theme, yet at the same time there's something about it that's quite new. The character is now perhaps one of wistful agitation. The second theme of the first movement initially takes the aspiring element further up the scale, but as it comes falling down again, we have more of those circling, narrow patterns that we felt in the chant and its lyrical offshoots. Mm -hmm. 
So we have melodic lines that move stepwise, circling around the interval of the third. That's three steps up or down. We find these throughout Rachmaninoff's Second Symphony. In the furious Russian sleigh ride that starts the second movement, the first theme on the horns also has a similar kind of movement at the base of it, now once again recalling the Diaz Irae chant. Even the violin's answering figures follow that movement in thirds. That same intervallic pattern is less dominant, less foreground perhaps, in the contrasting slower theme that follows, but it's still very much there in the background. The melody, you can feel, is still pivoting around it. And then there's the glorious long clarinet melody that begins the slow movement. I shouldn't have to set it up for you now. You can probably feel those circular intervallic third patterns turning away in the background. It's almost like a folk singer improvising on a chant that she half remembers. One other striking thing about some of the themes in the Second Symphony, especially these song themes, is how long they are. They don't seem under any pressure to get moving. They expand to fill plenty of space. That's typical not only of Rachmaninoff's melodies in this symphony, but generally in his works. And it's also true of Tchaikovsky, Prokofiev, and even the long, evolving lines of Shostakovich. 
Does it in some way correspond to the immenseness of Russia itself? The Russian philosopher Nikolai Berdyaev thought so. Something in the Russian soul, he said, corresponds to the infinitude of the Russian landscape. OK, I don't want to get carried away by national generalizations. I can't, for example, think of a composer of whom this is less true than Stravinsky. Sometimes Stravinsky seems to delight in atomizing lines. But it's interesting, though, as one listens to highly atomized music like this from the symphonies of wind instruments, in the background are still those circling chant patterns we've also heard in Rachmaninoff. This idea of peculiarly Russian spaciousness does seem particularly apposite in the case of Rachmaninoff's Second Symphony. It's a huge work, around an hour long in most performances, even if you don't take the first movement repeat. You can sense in this music the composer inhabiting a very large terrain, the sort of place where you can draw deep breaths. It's essential to its melodic thinking, indeed to its thinking in general. There's also something else that fascinates me about this symphony. Generally speaking, we're not comfortable with melancholy in modern Britain. Just about the worst thing you can call somebody these days is sad. But it was clearly very different in pre-World War I Britain. It's essential to much of Tennyson's poetry and to a lot of Elgar. But in Russia, despite, or maybe because of Soviet communist attempts to stamp out pessimism, bourgeois introspection, and such other dreadful things, the penchant for exploring darker feelings, especially those associated with death, remained, and indeed increased, in great Russian figures like Shostakovich. But in Rachmaninoff in particular, this delving into dark regions is especially associated with the sense of space in those huge half-improvised melodies and with the lineaments of ancient Russian church chant. These are collective elements which all Rachmaninoff's countrymen could recognise. In music like this, Rachmaninoff seems to say we rather than purely I. Perhaps that sense of the gradually discovered collective national feeling in a man much prone to gloomy isolation is one reason why Rachmaninoff's Russian chant-derived melodic thinking is able to turn gradually towards real irresistible joy in the finale. <laughs> So it would seem that Rachmaninoff, for a constellation of reasons, is able to communicate the sense that exploring grave emotions can be, well, rather enjoyable. We have the gorgeous scoring, the lush harmonies. It all constitutes a remarkably sumptuous, thick pile, velvety kind of melancholy. There's an interesting paradox here. There can be a kind of delight, even joy, in being with supposedly painful feelings. 
The English poet Christopher Smart wrote of a character who was of melancholy from the depths of his serenity. Was Rachmaninoff, at least as a composer, like that? Engaging creatively with one's deepest fears and longings can be a transformative experience, at least for as long as the creative act lasts. And for those of us who hear and engage with the results, it can perhaps be even more lastingly so. Whatever, in Rachmaninoff's Second Symphony, the process produced an almost indecent number of treasurable tunes. <laughs> 